Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Come now to the last verses of Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And so we are in chapter 5, and the text for this evening is verses 23 through 28. So hear God's word. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a doctrinal question that has been debated over the years, and the question is, can man keep God's commandments? Or we might word the question, can we be holy as God calls us to be? And as this passage this evening is about sanctification, at the very base of that word is the word holiness. Sanctification is about becoming holy, and we need to understand clearly what holiness means. It means, first of all, separation from sin. And second, it means consecration or dedication to God and his ways. So it involves separation and consecration. And God commands you, as we think of holiness, um, he commands us to stay away from sin. And uh, that out of love for him, we are to do what he desires. That is at the very heart of what holiness involves. In Leviticus 11, verses 44 through 45, we read, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And in Peter's first epistle, he on the basis of these verses in Leviticus tells his New Testament readers, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Matthew 5, verse 48 doesn't use exactly the word holiness, but it says, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And God's requirement then is clear enough. The pressing question is, are we able to be holy? Are we able to be perfect as God requires? Over the last couple of weeks, as we've been approaching the end of 1 Thessalonians, We've been dealing with a whole list of commands that really begin back in verse 12 here in chapter 5. The keeping of these commands is naturally part of what is required if you would be holy. And so I ask again, can you keep these commandments? Is it possible that with enough, we might say, willpower and with enough effort and with the right circumstances, is it possible that you would be able to do perfectly what God tells you to do? I ask that question because there are a number of people over the years who who have insisted that man in his own strength is able to keep God's commandments. They insist that it would be unjust of God to require of us something that we cannot do. And so they say that it is possible for you and me and every other human being, even apart from God and his grace, to consistently keep all of God's commandments. In other words, they say it would be unfair for God to command us to do something that we cannot perform. This was actually a debate that occurred during the time of the Reformation, 
And the reformers argued from the scriptures that depraved, unregenerate man is not able to keep God's commandments. They openly admitted that God does require of us as sinners things that we are not able to do. And God is not unjust in this because it is as a consequence of our own sin that we have plunged ourselves into this slavery to sin. And as Reformed believers, we believe that the Reformers were biblical in holding this view of man's depravity. For example, Romans 3 says explicitly, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the, flesh, of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we have in 1 John, the apostle telling us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so those who insist that Man has the natural ability to keep God's commandments are deceived. Well, in the passage before us this evening, in verses 23 and 24, um, these verses clearly teach that any ability to keep God's commandments comes from God. And to, to come to this understanding, notice how Paul has in the previous verses, given, has, he has given us commandment after commandment. Um, I draw your attention to the verses immediately preceding our text as an example. Uh, There in verses 21 and 22, it says, Test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And then after laying out God's will in terms of these commandments, Paul immediately turns in verses 23 and 24 to praying that the God of peace will sanctify these believers. So this is a prayer that God will enable the the Christians of Thessalonica to keep these and all other commandments of God. By having Paul record this prayer, God is telling the Thessalonian believers, he's telling us today that the ability to obey God comes from God himself. It is as though Paul is saying, I've just been telling you all kinds of things that you need to do, but the only way that you are going to be able to do them is through God changing you and enabling you to obey. And so I pray, I pray that God will sanctify you. May your whole spirit and soul and body even be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this work of God giving believers the ability to obey is what Scripture calls the work of sanctification. Sanctification is this process by which God transforms you and me as believers into the image of Christ. It's the work of God's free grace whereby our whole person is renewed after the image of God and we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. To state the matter simply, sanctification is that work of God's grace making us perfect, making us holy, uh, making us without sin, utterly free of any law-breaking or character flaws. Now, it's not uncommon for the Apostle Paul in the closing of his letters to bring up what he considers to be particularly important. 
And apparently, as Paul thought about the people there in Thessalonica, people whom he loved, people whom he wanted to know God's blessings, he could think of nothing better for them than that they would be sanctified. That this alone would be the subject matter of his prayer tells me that we need to realize the great significance of this work of God. As you think about your future, about your life in the years to come, What, in your opinion, is the greatest thing that could happen? I'm certain that if a survey was conducted across the U.S. using that question, the majority of the time people's dreams would have to do with material wealth. What they would long for in the future would be some pleasurable aspect of life here on earth. It's safe to assume that Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians reveals what he considered to be the greatest blessing that he could think of for them. Their sanctification is the greatest goal that he can foresee for their future. And so following Paul's lead, you and I also ought to think about the greatness of God's work of sanctification. God's work of sanctification is an important part of our salvation. It's helpful to understand um, as part of salvation, it's two main aspects, the first of which is justification and the second of which is sanctification, the theme of this evening's text. But to speak for a moment about justification. Justification is God's forgiving of our sins. Justification is the legal declaration that in God's sight, you as a believer in Christ, you as one who has laid hold of Christ by faith, it is a legal declaration that you are innocent of sin. When you think of justification, you are to think of a courtroom where you are standing before God as judge, and for you to be justified is for God to legally declare you innocent of sin. Of course, this is not something that God automatically does, nor does he do it for everyone, but God justifies sinners in the way of their repentance and faith. So to be justified in the sight of God, you need to confess your sin, you need to turn from it, you need to believe Um, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins, and you must by faith lay hold of the work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross. And while faith in Jesus Christ is the instrument, we, we say, or the means or the way of justification, God justifies sinners on the basis of Christ's work. He justifies us on the basis of his death, his resurrection, and the perfect life of obedience that he was able to live. And you and I are justified when we trust Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and God imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. And so justification in some is an act. Notice that key word. It is an act of God pardoning our sins and accepting us as righteous in his sight because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith. So in principle, justification is a one-time event. And once God declares you to be innocent, declares you as without sin in his sight, that is a declaration that is never revoked. Well, sanctification is different. Rather than an act of God, it is a work of God, but a work that is concurrent with justification. In other words, it is something that only justified sinners experience. And like justification, sanctification is something that God does for sinners only on the basis of Christ's work. But unlike justification, sanctification is not a one-time event. 
Sanctification is an ongoing process. It is the process of becoming holy, of becoming more and more separated from sin, more and more dedicated to God. So someone might ask the question, maybe you are even this evening asking the question in your mind, aren't we as Christians already holy? And aren't we perfect in God's sight the moment we repent of our sin and trust Christ? And so doesn't this idea of becoming holy contradict the belief that we are already right with God? Well, these are good questions. They are ones that people naturally think about and ones that need to be answered in a biblical way. And in response to these questions, I would begin by saying that Scripture sometimes does describe Christians, describes us as already being holy. Again and again, um, God's people are addressed in Paul's epistles as saints, which is a word that literally means holy ones. You are to think of yourself, Christian, as a holy one. We also have such passages as 1 Corinthians 1 Verse 2, where Paul addressing the church of Corinth says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So as those who by God's grace have been spiritually in principle separated from the world, as those who now live for God, you're, you're, you're living a new life of dedication to God, and as those who are perfect in God's sight through Jesus' cleansing blood, we are holy. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Christ's sacrifice has brought us into a relationship with God where we are cleansed, where we are purified from sin. And these verses, if we were to take them by themselves, seem to teach sanctification as an accomplished state that sounds almost like justification. But a few verses later, in the same chapter of Hebrews 10, in verse 14, we have uh, these words. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Notice that. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So if we take all of Scripture together, we conclude that there is a sense in which we as justified Christians can say that we are already sanctified. As far as how God views us in Christ, we are his people. Uh, We are separated from the world. We are his people. We are consecrated to him. He has given us a new heart. He has given us uh, a new spirit. The, The Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, talks about how in regeneration, it talks about how we are regenerated and then we are further sanctified as we become more and more dead to sin and live unto righteousness. So there's a sense in which your regeneration was sanctification because in your regeneration you were given a new heart separating yourself, uh, separating you from the world, separating you from sin and uh, dedicating you to God, putting you on a new path uh, 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 of holiness. Um, So there's a sense in which we... uh, can say we're already sanctified. God sees us as his holy people. Um, at the same time, we are justified. This, this spiritual change has already taken place in us, this new birth giving us a new heart, so that in principle we no longer live for sin, but we live for God. And so we can talk about being already sanctified, and theologians will talk about positional sanctification, that we've put, been put on this new path 
of holiness, and it's called positional sanctification. But there's also the reality of the truth of Hebrews 10.14 that we are being sanctified, which is progressive sanctification. And there are plenty of scriptures that speak of our need to become perfect, how as Christians we are in the process of becoming holy. This is from the perspective of how in our everyday lives we still sin. Yes, we've been set apart. Yes, there is within us a new heart where we are dedicated to God, but not perfectly. Yes, in principle, positionally, we are sanctified as God's people, belonging to him, serving him. Um, We might even talk about being perfect in his sight because of our justification. If we want to speak of justification, normally we speak of righteousness, being declared righteous in the sight of God. But if we were to view ourselves as perfectly holy in that sense, perfectly holy in the sight of God, that would be, the, we, would, we would use the word sanctification. So that's, again, a positional sanctification. But the reality is that in our daily walk with the Lord, we're not perfect in terms of being set, totally separated from sin and totally consecrated to God, which is why we need to be sanctified. And this is Paul's perspective as he prays for the sanctification of the Thessalonian believers. He prays, notice, that they may be sanctified completely, which implies that at the time he's writing, they are not sanctified completely. And this ought to be obvious enough from the fact that he has felt the need to give them commands about how to live for God. He's also thinking about sanctification when he goes on to pray, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept or preserved blamelessly. Um, in, in reality, uh, our English translation uh, uses the word blameless as more like an adjective, but it's in the Greek an adverb. He says, notice, um, and may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blamelessly at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so literally, what the apostle is saying, that may you in your entirety, body, soul, and spirit, be perfectly or blamelessly kept in this state of sanctification at the Lord's coming. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be complete in your sanctification. That is my prayer for you. And that you will be, when Christ comes, kept in that state blamelessly preserved in that state forever and ever and ever. And so he's looking forward to their being made perfect in sanctification at the time the Lord returns as judge, which again implies that at the present time they're not perfectly sanctified. They're not perfectly holy. He's praying that something will take place, that something will happen in the future. The scripture is clear that our salvation will not be complete until we are sanctified. Certainly a good thing to be justified. We don't want to minimize our justification. It's wonderful to know that we are no longer under God's condemnation. And it's a gift beyond description to know that our sins are forgiven. And yet it's one thing to be regarded or to be declared as perfect. And another thing to be actually perfect. Because God regards us as perfect through faith in Christ, we do have nothing to fear in terms of his wrath, in terms of any justice being unleashed against us. We're safe in Christ, and God assures us that we are in a relationship, a friendship, 
and fellowship with him. At the same time, if we are to live with him in heaven, we are to be perfect. If we are to experience the fullness of God's blessings, we are to be holy like our Savior Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Revelation 21, verse 27 tells us that in the heavenly city of God, there shall be by there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. And Revelation 14, 5 describes believers in heaven as without sin. It says, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so to dwell in the intimacy of, uh, in intimacy with God in heaven, we are to be perfect. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, that only the pure in heart will see God. Isaiah 6, 2 tells us that angels cover their faces in the presence of the holy God. How then could an unholy person see God? In our own experience as believers, I'm certain that you understand what I'm going to be talking about here. We long for more than justification. We're not content just to know that our sins are forgiven. We want more than that. We want to stop sinning. We want to be holy. We want to be wholly consecrated to God and separated from sin. We want to be in heaven with our holy God, no longer struggling with sin, no longer bringing dishonor to his name. And this completion of our salvation is held out to us in Scripture as something in the future. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am... Sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is praying for the Thessalonian Christians, both in the letter to the Philippians and here in our passage. Paul is, notice, thinking about this sanctification in the context of Christ's second coming. It's only natural that he would do this for a couple of reasons. First, it is at the second coming of Christ that we need to be sanctified. For when Christ returns, he will return as judge. And all of us will stand before him and we will have to give an account of our lives. And as believers, you and I are to plead the death and work of Jesus Christ, his his death on the cross, as our only hope. The gospel promise to us is that through Christ, our sins will not be held against us. And so, believer, you'll have nothing to fear on Judgment Day. At the same time as we stand before Christ on that day, we will stand there as those who up until then have not been perfect. And who from that point of view are not fit, from, uh, are not fit for heaven. So what are you going to do? How is it that you're going to be allowed in heaven? Well, Christ must sanctify you. Christ alone can make you sinless, and he will, all on the basis of his saving work. Paul prays for this work because it is vital to our salvation. Our entire self must be perfected. And Paul lists various aspects of our being. There's debate whether or not there are three parts to us, which is called trichotomy, or whether there are two parts, dichotomy. Um, He mentions spirit, soul, and body. I believe that that really he's talking about um, us as as physical beings. That's our body. We are also spiritual beings, and there are 
two words that refer to us from a spiritual point of view, spirit and soul. So I, I take the dichotomous view uh, of man. But the point is that every part of us, physical and spiritual, must be changed. Our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our souls are all right now tainted with sin in various ways. We are in every part of our being. Um, we in every part need to be made holy if we are to be fit for heaven. And people of God, the good news is that at the Lord's second coming, this work of sanctification will be completed. There's no question that this final stage of your salvation will happen. Paul tells us, notice verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. God keeps his word. He doesn't go back on what he begins. And I would draw your attention to verse 23, where God is referred to as the God of peace. Biblical peace is peace with God. It's peace that God establishes with sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. God's plan to send Jesus Christ is all about God wanting to restore a peaceful relationship with rebellious sinners. And, and peace also is a term in scripture that refers to spiritual prosperity in its fullest sense. And so when you are at peace with God, you have a relationship with God where his blessings are upon you. Peace with God is all about us as saved and redeemed sinners being drawn into the experience of God's fellowship. And the point is that in sending Jesus Christ to die for us, we know that God is the God of peace. We know that he can and will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. We know that his will is that we would enjoy his glorious fellowship in heaven. And we know that Christ has earned this reward for us as his people. And so if we just put everything together, we know that one day we will be sanctified completely. I know for myself, as I think about being sanctified, I can really only imagine how great that will be. Imagine no longer sinning. Imagine being holy and being able to see the Lord, to be in his presence, to be with God and to have no sin or imperfection hindering that fellowship. These are things that you and I ought to look forward to with great eagerness. And we, like Paul, should pray for this great work of God. You should pray for it because you long for it. Pray for it because you know only God can do it. And pray for it even though you know it will happen because prayer is the means by which God gives you his blessings. But while we know what will happen in the future, we live in the present. We live an imperfect life here on earth. And I, and I would have you to consider the rest of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here in that light. Verses 25 through 28 all deal with matters that all pertain to life here on earth as we await the coming of Christ and the completion of this work of sanctification. So notice, first of all, Paul asks the brethren, the brothers, to pray for him and for his companions. He says, brothers, pray for us. Even the great apostle Paul desired that people would pray for him. This is because he knew that his life, he knew that his ministry were dependent upon God. And you and I need to have the same perspective on our lives. You are dependent upon God for all things. God is the source of all good gifts. God is the one who must bless your work if it is going to be successful. God is the only one who can save you. It is true that in the work of 
sanctification, we cooperate. In other words, God expects us to put forth great effort to live holy lives. And we are to make use of the means of grace to grow as Christians. This means it's your responsibility to read the Bible, to attend church and Bible studies, to do those things that will help you to grow as a Christian. And yet, while doing these things, you must pray for God to sanctify you because ultimately any progress that you will make in your Christian life is due to his work in you. So that even in sanctification, in the end, all of the glory must, must and will go to God. The truth is you cannot grow as a Christian in your own strength. You cannot be holy in your own strength. Only through Christ working in you can you be what God wants you to be, which is why you must pray. As long as you live on this earth, you're not going to be perfect. But as a saved sinner, thankful for God's grace, you will want to be perfect. And so you must pray. And pray not only for yourself, but pray for each other. And then verse 26 brings out how important we are as brothers and sisters in Christ to each other, to to our spiritual progress during our journey here on earth. Paul writes, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. It was part of the culture of Paul's day that Christians would kiss one another when they would come together as a way of expressing their love for one another. And it's worth pointing out probably that men kissed men and women kissed women, so this was not at all something that could be perceived as sexual in nature, but as an expression of unity in Christ and as a seal of the affection believers felt for one another. In our daily spiritual struggles, the point is we need each other, exactly because we are not yet perfect. Because this earthly life lies under the curse of sin, we need the comfort and the encouragement, the instruction, the accountability that we can give each other in the Lord. And we need to be reminded of this because it is a fact that we don't always appreciate one another like we should. And it can happen that we don't even always get along. And it's this potential lack of unity, which is probably what is concerned, um, Paul is concerned about as he writes in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. <clears throat> church in Thessalonica, as I pointed out before, was overall a very good, solid church. There were no glaring problems, and yet there were some weaknesses, including people that Paul has called disorderly. It's possible that some of these disorderly individuals would decide they weren't going to be present to hear the reading of this letter, probably thinking that, rightly so, that some of the words were going to be directed to them. And so Paul stresses that everyone needs to hear this letter. What an important reminder this is to us as well, that you and I need to hear God's word, because you understand that this letter, this communication from the Apostle Paul, is actually revelation from God. And so this is about hearing God's word. And we may not always like to hear it. It may seem like it's pointing a finger at us and we don't like it. Don't turn away. Keep listening. Submit to God. This is vital to your sanctification. Do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to be perfect? Then you must listen to God's word. Listen so that you can apply that word to your life. And then the final verse of 1 Thessalonians 5 reminds us that ultimately what we need is the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor. It's the work of God in your life enabling you to keep his commandments. 
Grace is the favor of God by which he answers your prayers. Everything that you now possess in Christ is because of grace. Everything that you have yet to experience in terms of salvation is all of grace. Every aspect of your salvation from beginning to end is of grace. So don't trust yourself uh, to make yourself right with God. Don't trust in your own ability to keep God's commandments. Without grace, you and I are nothing, and we can do nothing to make ourselves good. You must know that you need Christ and his gracious work in your life. So look to Christ to justify you. Look to Christ to sanctify you. Meanwhile, as you wait for the Lord's return, pray for each other. Lovingly help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Study God's word. Live each day in dependence on the grace of Jesus Christ. Remembering that it is Jesus alone who can give you the things that really matter, the things that last for all eternity, things that must be important. The Lord gave himself to the death of the cross to earn them for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you for the justification that is ours in Christ by faith, this legal declaration that we are without sin in your sight. We also thank you, Father, for the work of sanctification, that work that began with our regeneration, where you set us upon a path uh, toward holiness. And Father, we thank you for this process by which you make us more and more like yourself, like the Lord Jesus Christ, in our character, in our values, in our love for you. Father, we pray that we would Um, continue to progress in our our Christian walk with you. We pray, Lord, that one day when Christ's return, we will be made uh, perfectly holy. And Lord, may you preserve us. May we be kept blameless in that state of perfection at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that at that time we will no longer have to struggle with sin, that in all of our being, body, soul, and spirit, that we will be completely devoted to you. We will be utterly separated from sin, serving you completely. Father, we look forward to that day, thankful that this is yet another benefit that Christ has earned for us, a benefit that enables us to be in your presence in heaven for all eternity. Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.